Hello, and welcome to the 96th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Wednesday, the 24th of April, 2019, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week, I'm delighted to welcome Kian Prendeville to the show to talk about the Limerick Soviet of 1917. Kean is a former Solidarity Councillor in Limerick City and currently is a member of the Irish Socialist Party. On top of all that, he is the producer of the new podcast all about the Limerick Soviet called Bottom Dog. This week, I have the new Patreon, Chris, to thank. If you'd like to help keep the episodes flowing, you too can join the Patreon gang gang for only $5 a month, which works out at about $1 an episode. We're close to hitting the magic 50 Patreons, upon which I'll produce an extra Patreon-only podcast every month. The remaining few Patreons who sign up from now to then will receive an exclusive handmade commie badge as a bonus. So if that's your bag, just click on that there Patreon button. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel. And also make sure to like, subscribe and share. You can also join me on Facebook or Twitter too. Okay, to the interview. So, Kian, there was a Soviet in Limerick City in 1919. How, how the hell did I never know about this? Well, I, I think that it's an inconvenient history for a lot of the, the mainstream historians uh, and for the mainstream parties. They, they prefer it to be forgotten, to be brushed under the carpet, because it, it, it speaks to a revolutionary opportunity that existed in Ireland at that time, an opportunity for socialism that uh, they prefer to be forgotten. And it, it hasn't been celebrated as it should do. But it's, I think it's starting to be celebrated a lot more now this year for the centenary. There's a whole load of plays and documentaries and stuff like that coming out. Hopefully my own podcast will help contribute to, to, to spreading the word about it as well. Give us the background then to how this has happened. The Irish Revolution was taking place. There was a, a what I've called a, a bit of a Game of Thrones situation taking place. There was different forces battling to see who would rule Ireland. Uh, you had British imperialism on the one hand. You had the emerging like Irish capitalist class around Sinn Féin. And you also had the working class fighting. And th- these three different forces were fighting to, to decide who would rule in Ireland. And the spark that ignited the Limerick Soviet in particular was the death of uh, an IRA activist guy called Robert Byrne, who died trying to escape British custody. His death sparked a major turnout to his funeral. The British military saw this turnout to his funeral as as a provocation. And in retaliation, they imposed martial law, which meant that they put checkpoints on the bridges. They put tanks on the bridges. So workers having to go to to work in the morning would have to pass through a checkpoint. They'd actually have to get a permit just to go to work. People in Limerick said, no, we're not going to do that. They decided to come out on strike rather rather than get permits. Do you want to give us an insight then into, say, the organising that led to such a radical thing happening in, in a city like Limerick? Yeah, like the, the, the big backdrop was the Russian Revolution of 1917. That sparked, together with the opposition to World War One, revolutionary movements right across Ireland and uh, right across Europe. And in Ireland, you had the growth of this radical syndicalist trade union called the ITGWU, which had been set up by Jim Larkin, who was like a revolutionary syndicalist, and later by James Connolly, um, who was a, a, a socialist, a Marxist, uh, um, with syndicalist sort of tendencies as well. And syndicalism was the idea 
that you could overthrow capitalism via the general strike, that all you needed was one big trade union, one big trade union uh, that would call workers out on strike that could finish off capitalism. This was the kind of Rosa Luxemburg idea. Yeah, it was yeah similar enough to, to Rosa. Obviously, Rosa would have also been involved in the SPD and in building a, a revolutionary, or a, a, what she saw as a Marxist party as well. But it's, it's along those same lines. There is definitely a parallel between some of the ideas of Connolly and, and Rosa. And this union actually grew rapidly. Like The ITGWU ended up with 100,000 members, 120,000 members in Ireland. Um, in Limerick, which was a city of, uh, there would have been 15,000 workers. In 1919, they, the ITGWU had about 3,000 members. So you know, a, a fairly large part of the uh, working population in Limerick was, was in this quite radical trade union. So is that the trade union that has since, that's what now called SIP2? That is now what's called SIP2, though I, I, I suspect SIP2 would now be one of the more conservative trade unions in the country. The leadership of SIP2 would be very close to the Labour Party. They, they supported lots of the austerity measures. So I, I suspect that James Connolly and Jim Larkin would be turning in their graves at the sight of what some of those at the head of SIP2 are doing today. It's, it's funny you talk about Big Jim Larkin. When I was in school, myself and two other kids in my class were took out for school for a couple of weeks back in the late 80s. And we did a project on the 1913 lockout. There was lots of stuff in there about Big Jim Larkin and stuff like that. But it shows you how it was taught to us that I never knew that Big Jim Larkin was, yeah. was like a communist or a syndicalist. I never even knew that James Connolly was. It's amazing how this stuff is actually taught. Yeah, like the, the, the way well, Connolly is just sort of dealt with like he's just a Republican, a martyr or a nationalist, you know. And, and yeah, he cared about workers, but they sort of say at the end of the day, he put aside his socialism and he realised that he pulled on the green jersey and all that. But actually, so some fantastic quotes from Connolly warning precisely about if you, oh, if you kick out the British military tomorrow, uh, and you raise the green flag over Dublin Castle, unless you set about constructing a socialist republic, you, you, you'll have you, all your efforts will be in vain. You're going to have all the same problems. Uh, um, and he was warning that, look, if you yes, we, we need to fight against imperialism and, and, and end British rule in Ireland, but we also need to fight against capitalism and end the rule of capitalism in Ireland. Uh, um, and I, I think they have gutted Connolly of that revolutionary element uh, and that socialist element because it's, the threat, you know, uh, um, to be teaching this stuff in, in, in school, people might be getting ideas, you know. It's true. So getting back to, to Limerick then, can you tell us who the movers and shakers were then amongst these revolutionary socialists? Yeah, so the, the, the right-hand man, a very close friend of Connolly, was a guy, Sean Dowling, who Connolly had encouraged him to move down to, to the Midwest of Ireland. So Limerick is a small city on the West Coast. And he arrived in Limerick in about 1918. Dowling went about organizing a lot of these workplaces and he would have later on he was called the ideological or the philosophical begetter of the soviet and um, so he would have been one of the the, the, the main organizers. dowling's fascinating actually as well he was the first person sacked in ireland for anti-war activity during world war one he was quite a fighter he went on after the limerick soviet he went on to organize similar strikes and occupations right across the county but dowling would have been one of the main key people but Obviously, it wasn't just down to individuals. The strongest workforce, that the first workforce that came out on strike was Cleves Factory. So it was about 600 workers. They made condensed milk and, and toffee and stuff like that. And it was predominantly a female workforce. 
and they were strong when when the British imposed these checkpoints. The Cleves factory workers were, were strongly affected because that factory was on the the north side of the river, but lots of the workers would have lived on the south side of the river. So they would have had to cross through every day. And so they were the first ones to say, no, we're not going to do this. They came out on strike and then they sort of lobbied for the other unions in the in the city to come out with them. That's how the, the general strike was called. And then the general strike quickly elevated from being a strike to they took over the bakeries, they started producing bread, they started running the city essentially themselves. Do you want to tell us then a bit about uh, Robbie Byrne, who was, or Robert Byrne, who, and how he died? The, the worst rescue attempt in history, probably. Um, <laughs> he, he, was, uh, he was locked up for possession of a gun. When he went into prison, he went on hunger strike. And between the hunger strike and just police brutality, or he ended up having to be transferred to a hospital. And then the IRA tried to uh, rescue him from the, the hospital. Uh, but in the rescue attempt, he got shot uh, and he died later on that day. And it was even, it was kind of farcical in some ways. Not only was he, he, he was shot in the rescue attempt, but uh, when they did get him out of the hospital bleeding, they, they came out the wrong door. So their, their, their rescue car, the car, their getaway car um, wasn't there. And they ended up having to just go out into the road and stop the first horse and cart that came by and, and take that over. But he ended up dying uh, um, and then his funeral became a lightning rod. About 15,000 people came out to the funeral and the, the British military then decided to, to, to clamp down and to try to send people a lesson, I suppose, by, by imposing martial law, by putting tanks on the, on the streets. And what was the British reaction to when they declared the Soviets? They, they were in disarray to a large extent. They had a problem, which was that there was more workers in Limerick than there were soldiers. So if they went in all guns blazing, not, not only would they, could have, they could have been outnumbered, but also they could have triggered solidarity action right across Ireland and right across the world, stretching into Britain as well. So instead, the British military retreated. They retreated to their barracks um, and they essentially left the city to the, to the workers. They manned the checkpoints around the city uh, and they monitored anything coming in and going out. They tried to stop food coming in and stuff like that. But they never, they didn't dare to leave those checkpoints they didn't dare to go into the city center itself so they, they basically had to leave the city to be to, to be run by the workers was there that many guns in the city that they were afraid to go in well i don't know if it was i don't think it was particularly that they would have been a bit feared a, a gun battle but they would have feared the political consequences of it. that if they had gone in and shot people in limerick and you know that that you would have had solidarity action right throughout the country the railway men or the rail workers at the time they would be called railway men they had already indicated that they were going to come out on strike and like the, in 1919 the, the railways it was the, the the internet of its day it was the network that connected the country so if the train drivers came out on strike or if dublin came out on a general strike or whatever that would have seriously endangered the british rule but also it, it wouldn't have gone down very well in, in britain itself either if they were shooting trade unionists for engaging in a strike action, that you could have seen, you know, solidarity and sympathetic strikes taking place in, in the belly of the beast, so to speak. So I think it was more so that political fear, that fear of the power of the working class as a class, that kept them in check. Did how much did they restrict food in and out of the out of the city? Yeah, they, they tried to impose a bit of a siege, but it didn't really work. The, the workers managed to smuggle in food. One of the things 
that they did was there would have been a lot of people would have had boats. Limerick is on the, the River Shannon, and there would have been a lot of at this stage, a lot of people would have fished. And um, so at night time, they smuggled food in over the river by boat. One fascinating story that's told, which is they, 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 the workers staged fake funerals. So the horse would start outside of the city and would then drive into the city, go through the British checkpoint. But the coffin, there was no body in the coffin. It was full of food. But <laughs> it was, they, they were putting it up to the soldiers. Were they going to, you know, were they going to investigate this horse, crack open the coffin just to check? You know, they, they weren't willing to do that. So they smuggled food in, in in ingenious ways, you know. Talk a bit then about the operation of the Soviet. Yeah, so the Trades Council which was the, the body that brought together all the trade unions, they set up a strike committee, or they set themselves up as a strike committee, and then they set up subcommittees. So they set up subcommittee for food, for finance, for propaganda, and vigilance. So the food subcommittee organised that, bringing the food in, but interestingly, they went beyond just bringing in the food, they then had to distribute it. They, they set up depots across the city, they also reopened some of the bakeries in the city, they, there was a there was a boat of Canadian grain in the docks and they unloaded the grain and they started using that grain to bake bread. And then they, they set prices, they, they outlawed profiteering during the Soviet. That's what the, the, the food committee sort of started doing that. The, the propaganda committee would have produced newspapers, gave permits as to what private newspapers were allowed to be published. The vigilance committee went around making sure that shops weren't profiteering or any shops that were allowed open were only opening in the designated hours and making sure that any places that were meant to be closed, that they, they weren't operating, they weren't using scabs or anything. Did they seize any property off anybody or what? Yeah, um, it was kind of limited. The phrase Soviet, like later on, uh, after the Limerick Soviet, there was a, a whole rake of what was called the Munster Soviets, where they did take over factories and run the factories democratically in like a traditional Soviet, where the workers committee ran the factory for themselves. In Limerick, it wasn't quite like that. The, the bakeries that opened were opened, they were run for profit, but, but still, they were open, they, didn't, they were run by the owners, but tightly controlled, and prices were set. The grain that they unloaded from the docks, I, I'm not sure if they paid for that grain. <laughs> so I think, that they, I think that they did commandeer that grain anyway. But it, it wasn't a full-on socialist plan in that sense. But there, there is an interesting story from, as I said, a few years later, the brewery Soviet, uh, where they took over a bakery in 1921. And in the course of that Soviet, where the workers were running it, they managed to bring down prices, they increased wages, and they increased productivity, um, which was a sign of how effective workers' control can be when it's sort of democratically controlled. Workers can run things an awful lot better than, than, than the bosses. So was the ITGWU, that's the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, were they linked to the Labour Party? The trade union movement at that stage would have been, it was the Irish Trade Union Congress and Labour Party. It was the one organisation. So the, the heads of the Trade Union Congress were the heads of the Labour Party. And it was only later that they, they split into two separate things. And the ITGWU would have been part of that. But the people at the head, the, the people who ran the trade unions of the Labour Party nationally were very different to the Dowlings. They were people like William O'Brien, who was quite a conservative figure in reality. He would have been very good at giving a radical sounding speech, but when push came to shove, he did not like what was happening in Limerick. So what the, those national leaders did is they ended up, they went in, they met with the, the cabinet of the first all. So the Sinn Féin MPs had been elected in January 1919, 
and they had refused to sit in the British Parliament and instead they set up their own parliament in, in Ireland and they set themselves up as their own cabinet and all. So William O'Brien went into discussions with them. He spent three days talking with the cabinet. But what Sinn Féin said to the trade unions was to, to wrap this up. They, they did not want the Limerick Soviet spreading. And that's what William O'Brien then did. He, pa- he passed that on to Limerick that, look, you're not going to get national solidarity here. You need to bring this thing to an end. Was Sinn Féin so bourgeois at the time? Did it not have elements like, say, Countess Markovic, who was like a socialist as well? Or was it just like nearly straight down the line? It's precisely because Sinn Féin would have had class divisions in it. That's why they would have been scared. They were scared that something like the Limerick Soviet would break it in two. On the, gra- the grassroots of Sinn Féin, I'm sure would have, a lot of their grassroots would have been working class people who would have been out on strike or would have supported it. But obviously the, the, the tops of Sinn Féin were bourgeois politicians, they were capitalist politicians. What they were fighting for was a capitalist nationalist republic. So it was that fear that, the, that this would divide and would distract from the nationalist movement. That's what led them to, to want to, to crush it. Markievicz, unfortunately, doesn't have the same proud record that people often think. Markievicz, um, later on, in those other monster Soviets where it was small villages and stuff like that, Markievicz would have sent in troops to crush those as well, I'm afraid. Uh, and she has a, a very good name. Uh, people seem to think that she's great, but unfortunately she had less than a proud history in the actual civil war when it broke out. Fair enough. I don't really know the history too much. I was just wondering about... No, it. That, that's, quite a popular, that's quite a popular sense, but... But yeah, like in the Civil War, when the anti-treaty side, which would go on to be what we now call Fianna Fáil, when they took over a city, the, one of the first, our town, one of the first things they did was they shut down the, the Soviet, they, they shut down the strike uh, and they got people back to work. And the same, when the pro-treaty side took over a town, the first thing they did is they, they shut down the, the Soviets that existed. So bo- both sides of Sinn Féin, unfortunately, played quite a, an anti-worker role. What happened then to the Soviet? Did they easily wrap up like the leadership told them to? So what happened was, after about 10 days, the National Trade Union leadership finally had a meeting with the Limerick workers. For the 10 days, all the newspapers had been full of talk that there was going to be a general strike, a national general strike in solidarity with Limerick. Or at the very least, that the train drivers would come out in solidarity and that would pile on extra pressure. But when they finally met with the in Limerick, what they proposed, they said, look, we're not going to call a general strike. But what we will do is we'll stage a, an evacuation of the city, a sort of a practical joke of the British army. We will move everybody from Limerick to Cork and Dublin and whatever, uh, uh, like the entire population of the city. We'll, and we leave the British troops you know, protecting an empty shell. I don't think that was ever really a serious proposal, but uh, it had the desired effect, which was they told the workers that they weren't going to get the solidarity that they wanted. And they were in a bind because they, they, they had fought the British military to a standstill, to a stalemate, but they, they, they needed some sort of national solidarity in order to uh, land the knockout blow. So they, had, they, they, they called off, they ended up calling off the strike. They sent some workers back to work immediately and they told others to stay out on strike. And then a couple of days later, they told everybody to go back to work. At the time now, we're talking like 1919, what was the strength of, say, the radical left in Ireland, percentage-wise, do you reckon? So, well, the the ITGW, as I said, would have risen to about 120,000 workers, which was bigger than Sinn Féin. Its newspapers would have been more read than the number of the Sinn Féin newspapers. It would have been a mass force at that time. 
And in were they Bel- armed at all? Not really. No, uh, um, they had previously had the ICA, but it wasn't really the national leadership's decision was that they'd leave all that stuff to Sinn Fein. Their goal, the goal of people like Williams O'Brien, their vision was to support Sinn Fein coming to power, support the establishment of a capitalist, independent Ireland, but make sure that they had a seat at the table, that they had a cosy relationship with the with in the new with the new capitalist government. So that, that they didn't want to challenge them too much for power, and and having their own armed force would have you know would have been stepping on Sinn Fein's toes, I suppose. So the ICA now, that's not the Irish Country Women's Association. No. Others in. No, what it's is not. that then? <laughs> it's the Irish Citizens Army. Uh, um, uh, uh, the Irish Citizens Army, which was set up in, I believe, in 1913 in the strike and lockout to defend striking workers. But it was an armed defence force set up by the ITGWU, by, by Connolly. Now, did that take part in the 1916 rising? It did, it did. And Connolly warned them to uh, hold on to your guns because if they win, they're going to need their guns to fight against some of the others that were taking part in that rising. What happened after the thing kind of fell apart, say, in Limerick? What, what was the legacy, both immediately and, and since then? Immediately, there was a lot of anger. A lot of the ITGWU members would have torn down the proclamations that went up calling off the strike. And it seems that for a while, there was some thinking that maybe the ITGWU would continue a strike, even though the Trades Council had gone against it. Because there was... You know, there was this division within the trade union movement. The ITGWU were more radical, but there would have been more conservative unions as well. So there was upset at it, but th- th- that never materialised. So immediately there was a certain frustration. But the organisers of the Limerick Soviet went on to then organise... Some of the key organisers, like Sean Downing, would have went on to organise major strikes, workplace occupations and, and Soviets out in the county. They would have organised a number of strikes uh, um, in the city as well. And you had a whole, it, it culminated in what was called the Munster Soviets, where I think 100 workplaces were occupied and run by the workers basically all at the one time, um, which was quite a, a high point in uh, Ireland's socialist history. I was just having a look here on Wikipedia when you were talking about the only kind of union I was in in Ireland, well, official union, was the, the Marine Port and General Workers Union, which was like the Dockers Union. Weirdly, when I was working for... Ericsson, the phone company, you had to be a member of the union. Of the and Dockers Union? That's yes, quite a... quite a random one. But it, it shows you, like, I was, the reason why I was bringing it up was because, you know, it's hard to believe how radical the ITGW were. Mm. When I was in Ericsson's, if you wanted to be, get into management, what they would get you to do is become a union rep first. Jesus, yeah, yeah. Like, the, the, the line for progression was union rep management it's hard to for me and my personal experience to imagine what the itgw must have been like at the time compared to what siptu was like say at the moment i i don't i think the heads of the unions in in ireland at this stage a lot of the heads were also conservative like the likes of william william o'brien or even in limerick on the trades council most of the trade unions would have been what were called craft unions which were carpenters or painters or plasterers or whatever they were sort of almost guilds and they would have been quite conservative forces. The, the ITGWU was organising women workers, whereas the, the craft unions didn't even recognise the women members of the ITGWU. They, they didn't consider themselves they, them full members, you know. So actually, even then, a lot of the unions were quite conservative. But there was an active movement at the base in the ITGWU. There was a huge amount of ordinary people that were building and fighting for that. And I think that's something that 
is missing now in a lot of these unions, that we need to organise workers and the left and revolutionaries need to, to be in those unions trying to fight to reclaim them, trying to organise and unionise workplaces that aren't unionised, that have been looked over by the trade unions, and trying to also build left-wing oppositions within those unions to, to fight for a more radical and um, a more fighting policy. I think in, in Ireland, unions get a lot of negative press and a lot of the unions in Ireland work along the lines of those conservative unions you're talking about. You know, they're guilds, yeah. you know, whether they're in doctors or consultants or workers in different state bodies or teachers, people, the normal working class people who are working not elite jobs or not kind of jobs that can involve a qualification to do, they look at the unions as kind of a, they don't feel like that they're on their side in yeah. general in Irish society at the moment. I, I think that's probably fair to say, is it? Yeah, there's a, a, a lot of workplace, a lot of young people that wouldn't, wouldn't have an idea of joining a trade union. They wouldn't see them as being for, for them. Uh, and I think that's the problem. And it's because uh, part of the problem is that the trade unions and the trade union leaders in Ireland were engaged in what they called social partnership. They had a seat at the table with the government. They saw the government as their partners. And they even, in some ways, when the governments were imposing austerity, a lot of the trade union leaders supported that. They, they backed that up. And the, they didn't uh, lead the kind of fight back. The, the, some of the big movements that we saw in Ireland were things like on the household tax and the water charges, where a lot of the unions like SIP2 and, and like wouldn't have supported those movements even. I think the same conditions that drove people to build fighting unions 100 years ago are there now. Like At that stage, you would have had precarious work. They didn't call it precarious work, but it, it was the situation you'd go down to the docks looking for a day's labour and they'd pick you, you and you, get a day's labour, the rest of you all have to head home. You would have had you know, terrible housing conditions, lack of job security, all that sort of stuff, which are the same problems that we're facing now. And I think that there is, you do see the start of people getting organised and building more combative trade unions. Like if you look at the even the Uber workers getting organised or the Glasgow female, the women council workers there getting organised and fighting, I think you do see some positive examples of how when workers come together and get organised and have a fighting lead and maybe a socialist leadership, and that gains can be won. And I think the job of those, for those of us who are socialists, to see the need for a radical trade union movement, we can't just sit on the sidelines and lament and give out about how bad the unions are. We also need to engage and try to fight within those trade unions to reclaim them and try to build left-wing uh, opposition groups within them, try to win them to a more fighting strategy. How many radicals are in the Irish union movement at the moment, do you reckon? Is there a uh, cohort or is it a, a, like a, a very small minority? I'd say it's a minority of conscious radical leftists that are in there. I think uh, in the teachers' unions you have in Ireland, you've seen a lot of this discontent and growing opposition and growing desire for more of a fight back you've seen the nurses union recently uh, engaged in, in a major strike action uh, there's a new union called which is organizing the ambulance drivers who are striking for union recognition and, and they, they wouldn't necessarily be like socialist activists or conscious left-wingers but they are in their bones their, their their life has pushed them to realize look we need a union that's going to fight for us so i think there is an opening there and there's a there's a space there and there's a need to build that kind of movement I don't, I don't have the answers as to how exactly it can be done. And I think we're, it is starting from a low point, but I think there is opportunities. You know? 
Yeah, I always remember the Irish Nurses Union 10, 15 years ago. They had, <laughs> weirdly, they had a guy as the head of the union. And, yeah. you know, there was probably like less than 1% of nurses in Ireland were men at the time. They changed the, the gender of the leader any, of the union anyway. I, I think that it's about more than changing the face. It's about you know, trying to have a fighting policy. Uh, um, and I think they did make a mistake. They, they were engaged in this strike action. The government was clearly on the ropes. They had a there was a major demonstration in support of the nurses, which is quite un- unusual. Like, what other strike do you know of where workers were able to mobilise t- tens of thousands of people out in support of them? You know, it, it's quite quite a strong mood that existed. And then the government uh, made them an offer, very vague offer, but the, the union decided to call off the strike, even without the details of the offer, you know? Uh, um, and they lost some of that momentum, which I, I think is a, is a mistake. You know, like if, if the government were on the ropes, that's precisely the time when you need to, to step it up, not call off your strike on some sort of vague promise of a, of a deal. What, what do you take from the example of the Limerick Soviet as a socialist? What learnings do you take from it? A couple of things. One, just a Marxist truism. We don't need the bosses. The bosses need us. That the workers of Limerick were well able to run the city, stamp out profiteering, make sure people had food. They even... One of the things we didn't touch on, actually, was that they printed their own money. They created their own local currency. So workers were well able to do that without the bosses, without the clergy, without the politicians telling them what to do. And that's something that I think is a lesson that we should study and should learn and teach people more about. But the other, the biggest thing for me is the tragedy of this time was that Limerick represented a path that wasn't taken, a a road not taken, which was the, the road of what Connolly would have called the Workers' Republic. That was the idea that you could overthrow, not just overthrow imperialism, but overthrow capitalism, uh, that you, you could have established a socialist Ireland at this stage. And instead of that path being taken, like that idea had a huge popularity, uh, had a, a resonance, not only in, in Limerick, but even in, in places like Belfast, uh, amongst Protestant workers, there was a, 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 a radical socialist consciousness emerging. You could have avoided what happened instead of, of a fight for a socialist republic is that the trade unions fell in line, played second fiddle to Sinn Féin and to the struggle for a, a capitalist republic, a, a Catholic clergy-run, poverty-stricken capitalist country. That wasn't a, an attractive prospect for Protestant workers in, in, in the Northeast. There was nothing in that for them. So in, you had this division of the working class, this injection of sectarian poison into the working class, and you had the partition and the creation of two poverty-stricken sectarian states, unemployment, emigration, all that. And the, 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 the lesson of Limerick was that there was an alternative. Um, that wasn't an inevitability, but that the alternative was putting your socialism front and centre, not falling in line and, and playing second fiddle to the, to the nationalists, but fighting for a, a socialist alternative. One thing we didn't touch upon was the role of the Catholic Church. What did they make of it at the time? They were quiet at the start. For the first week of the general strike, they said very little. They didn't want to alienate themselves too much, I suppose, and expose themselves as uh, the reactionaries that they were. But then once the momentum dipped, when the, the national trade unions said that they weren't going to call solidarity action and people's, the wind was taken out of the sails, it was the bishop came together with the Sinn Féin mayor of the city and the Chamber of Commerce. Um, and it was those three forces that proposed the ending of the strike. They were the ones that proposed like, this sort of compromise, this rotten compromise deal. And then as soon as the Soviet was over, the bishop and the priests were back out 
uh, lecturing people as to how terrible an idea that was, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But actually, it was interesting during when it was in its full flow, they stayed quiet. Amongst this like radical element that was in Ireland at the time, you know, whatever percentage it was, were these, you know, our our socialists and our Marxists or our syndicalists or whatever we want to call them at the time. Like, were they, you know, what we imagine like 100 years ago in Ireland, were they all Bible bashers? Like, was Connolly religious? Was Larkin religious? You know, what percentage of them were like actual atheist commies? There's a lot of debate as to whether Connolly was religious or not. I, I don't see it. I think that he, he, he was a bit, he was very skillful in his language. He, he used the language of Catholicism or, or Christianity a bit. He sort of described the bosses as being unchristian. Christ said that, you know, it's easier for a, a camel to get through the eye of the needle uh, than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. And he sort of lambasted the church. He said, look, you, you talk about all these great principles, but actually look at your, you're all about the jewellery and all this power and all that. So he, he sort of critiqued them in their own language, which some people employ, oh, well, look, he was really, he was using, he was a Christian ideologue, um, or he was influenced by that ideology. I'm not sure if that's true. I'd say he was more tactically using it, you know, to have a to, to, to have a go at them and because those phrases were popular and he was tapping into a popular consciousness. I don't know about Sean Dowling. I don't I don't know. I, 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 I'm not actually 100% sure on, on that. Uh, I don't think that whatever about their own private opinions on stuff, it's definitely clear that like it wasn't a barrier to them. It wasn't. They didn't. They, they saw the Catholic Church as a reactionary institution, propping up capitalism, propping up imperialism. So it wasn't, whether they personally, privately believed that when you die, you'll go to heaven, I, I don't know. But it, it, it wasn't in their day-to-day -day work. Uh, they, they were operating off of a, a, a Marxist sort of outlook, I would say. You know, it's just interesting because I'm after reading something recently, I can't remember where it was now, and they were talking about Irish Catholics before the famine. And apparently there was a lot less mass going, it was much more laissez-faire before the famine and i was wondering like you know sometimes people look back in history and they think you know because everybody was really holy in the 1940s and 50s that it was the same way in the 1910s mm -hmm. and i was wondering like was there a massive church repression done via the state in the 20s and 30s and 40s i don't know is the honest answer i would say when the irish when Sinn Féin came to power and they established a capitalist government they then really did lean on the church in a big way because like if you think of it britain sort of its ideological weapon was well look britain rules the waves you know so whether you're poor or rich if you're british you could be proud because we run the world you know and america's ideology that it sort of tried to paper over the class divisions with was oh well look we have this land of opportunity you're poor now but you could be a billionaire uh, and you know that that was their ideological glue that they tried to, to paper over class divisions with the the irish ruling class didn't have they couldn't say well i know you're poor but at least we run the world and they also could say couldn't say well you're poor but you could become rich because you know, irish capitalism was really really poor it was really a, a, a small player on the world scale so instead their ideological glue was catholicism they leaned on that and they used that in a big way and they gave the church control of schools of hospitals they, they they really doubled down on that so i wouldn't be surprised if the strength of the catholic church i would say that the strength of the catholic church and its influence grew a lot in the 20s and the 30s 
in terms of how strong it was in the in the turn of the century, I, 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 it definitely was a factor. But I, I don't know. I don't. I don't really. Uh, I'm not. That's not my area of expertise. I'm afraid. You know, it's interesting because I I often was thinking about it, and I was wondering like how much did the Irish Republican leaders decide to give the church free reign to set themselves up as a a Catholic state and have the backing of the Vatican and all the Catholic countries to kind of prevent a kind of reinvasion by England sometime down the future. I often wonder, did he like did he sign away all of that dev or whoever it was just to get some kind of political space for the nation? I'm not sure. What would have been the big major Catholic countries that would have been there to come to your uh, military aid? They might not have come to military aid, but they might have political power. You know, like even France would still would class itself a Catholic country, Spain, Portugal, Italy. You know, there's a, there's quite a few nations. There there's, could be something in it. I do think that the biggest reason was internal dynamics. Like the Catholic Church tells you your poverty is a virtue. You know, you should learn to, if you're poor, but you respect authority and you do what you're told, you'll get into, uh, you'll get your pie in the sky when you die as joe hill said you know so i think that it played a, a crucial role i think it was mainly that was its main role was the that internal thing the other thing that we haven't touched on is part of the reason part of the reason for this failure was tragically that people like sean dowling were, were isolated that it was the o'briens the conciliators and the careerists that that ran the, the trade union movement and the the dowlings the more revolutionary elements were isolated separate um, in their own little corners uh, um, and not organized and integrated enough. And I think that is a lesson for us as well, that we revolutionaries need to not just be, you know, plowing our own furrow, but we need to be coming together and being organized nationally, internationally into revolutionary organizations. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show today, Keen. Thanks for having me. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening. Please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. <laughs>